Hey everyone, this is Jim. Uh, I thought I would turn this on and start recording yet another episode of whatever the hell this thing is. Uh, for those of you who don't know, and uh, I'm going to introduce myself because it seems like there are people finding this thing and listening to me uh, out there that don't know me. My name is Jim. I'm a engineer in San Francisco, and I started recording this whole podcast during the pandemic, the shelter in place. So I'm locked at home, don't have a whole lot else to do. Um, actually, I've got tons of things to do, but I like to, you know, get on here and just start recording things about uh, whatever's going on on something of a regular basis. This isn't really scripted. There isn't a theme to anything. It's just me rambling. And uh, as much as I would like it to be interesting right now, I don't have much of a life, much like everyone else. I'm trying to do the responsible thing like everyone else or like like a lot of other people, I suppose, unfortunately, it's not everyone trying to do the responsible thing and stay in. So while I would love to be talking about things that are fascinating uh, out there in the world, what's going on, I, uh, for me, this is kind of like a break from the news, so I don't talk about that uh, too much. At least I, I try not to let it overwhelm what's going on here. And as far as what else is going on, like I'm just looking for a job. I do a lot of introspective stuff and do a lot of reading. Yeah, that, that's really all that's going on. So all this to say, setting the expectations, please don't expect this to be like a fascinating thing. It's just one guy alone in an apartment in San Francisco rambling about whatever the hell comes to his head. All right. So fair warning. Just want to put that out there. At the outset, I do wonder who is listening to this. Like, I wonder how how long they listen as well. Um, actually, I noticed. So I looked over what the analytics for this this podcast for the last couple of weeks, and it looks like there there was one person uh, who like maybe went through and sampled all of the episodes because it seems like all of the counts augmented by one in the span of a couple of days. And the thing is, there were two things that happened uh, later on that week. I got a rejection from a job that I was hoping to get. And I got a rejection from some girl I'd been talking to, um, like a potential dating prospect. Uh, she also, out of the blue, said, like, no, not interested in you. So, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not dwelling on this, um, but I am kind of curious, like, was one of those rejections based on, did, did somebody go and start listening to my, my stuff? And was like, no, there's a non-starter here, not interested. And I kind of wonder, like, again, this is not something I really actively worry about. I really, I really don't care. Between like my Twitter account, my blog, and like now this podcast, there's a whole lot of surface area out there to, you know, to attack as far as who I am and what it is that I say. There's, there's probably a lot of stuff that I say on these things that could be considered objectionable. And so I wonder, I wonder how much, how much all of that has cost me. Because if you're, if you just don't have any presence on the internet, there's really nothing to like lash out at. Um, and unfortunately, I think people do lash out. Uh, at least that's that. I think that's the inclination uh, for a lot of people. 
if the, uh, if the if the people commenting on YouTube videos are any indication if that's representative, probably isn't. It's probably the vocal minority. There's just some squeaky wheels out there. But you know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine um, who was who's very, very, very left leaning. Um, and in conversations I've had with her, like the, the few times it's gotten political, like I've said a I've said a lot of things that are very progressive, like, because I think, I think if you w went and did the tally, then you did like, okay, okay, Republican and Democrat, and you like went through all of my opinions on the issues, you could put a check mark in each column, and like, I don't know where you'd have more uh, check boxes. I don't know, I don't know where uh, the majority of my opinions would fall into which column. I, I, I think I sense that I'm probably more progressive than I am conservative, but I really couldn't say for sure quantitatively. Uh, don't really care to. But so I, I made a lot of points in our conversations that were progressive, critical of uh, Trump, critical of conservatism, critical of the right, and so on and so forth. Um, she didn't respond to any of these. Like they just kind of went in one ear and out the other. Um, there wasn't really a whole, whole lot of agreement voiced. But as soon as I said something that was objectionable, like as soon as I said something that was like it was not progressive in her mind, like she would jump on it and like lash out. And like, it's obvious, it, it, it clearly, it felt like a very conflicted set of conversations. So I, I think that's just the way, I, I think that's the psychology of people on the internet, at least a lot of people on the internet is that it's just, they're looking like you can find 19 things that I might say that you would agree with or at the very least not disagree with and you just are silent on them. But as soon as I say the 120th thing that is, uh, I don't agree with that at all and I've got to tell you exactly why. <clears throat> it's hard. It is hard. I think I've, the thing is most of the criticisms I make about people I can generally understand. That's why I'm criticizing them. Because at some point, that was me. I remember me in my early 20s, like 15 years ago. I'm not looking for how much I agree with other people. I'm not looking to build common ground. I'm like looking for where is it we disagree and what can I attack? Because I, I want to have a, I want to have a debate. I want something saucy. And I still like having those debates. But I mean, I think it has to come from a place of like mutual understanding, like I understand that we both kind of want the same thing. We both have the same values, you know? There are certainly things I would definitely argue and get angry about, like anybody who's going to be openly racist and advocate for racist things and insist that that is somehow good. Uh, no, no, not, not just going to go along with that quietly. That, that is something I would definitely argue. Um, Same thing with like child abuse. Like I've, I've often, people say like, okay, what could, what can make you get violent? You know, what might lead you to end another human being's life? Over the matter of, over the matter of like, yeah, child sexual abuse, that might be it. And it's not like I would go around and start, you know, I, would, I wouldn't be a vigilante, go out and start killing those people. But if it came down to, this is gonna happen to a child if you don't kill someone, I'd have to consider it, I think, at the very least. I don't know if I could take a human life. I've thought about it. 
just kind of like put yourself in that space. Is there anything that could possibly make you do something that extreme? Something that is just universally morally denounced. I honestly don't know. I don't know if there's anything that could really drive me to do it. Um, but I, I think like, yeah, I think I think abuse against children is probably that that might be the one thing that would that would intellectually I can look at it and say, yeah, that's possible. Don't know. In my job search, I came across a company that is uh, they look like they're an activist group, or like an activist group. They're 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 a political organization that is in the activist space, and their their mission is to try and reduce. Uh, childhood sexual abuse or child sex trafficking, that sort of thing. Um, I thought that was interesting because I believe in that. Like, I would certainly believe in the mission of that company if I was going to, like, give ample resources to some cause. Like, that's certainly one I fervently believe in. But I, I was like, I wonder, I wonder, I don't know if I could actually, like, do that for a living. I don't know if I could go every single day into a job where that's the focus of the company. And besides, they're, they're looking for like technologists so that they can try and like get on the internet and find sources of like child pornography and, and in order to like uh, eliminate them. So to, to be able to detect where this sort of thing is being disseminated online and uh, fighting against the people who are disseminating it. Sounds like a very hard problem, but I mean, that would be, this is, this is, I mean, as much as I would love to do that, it's like, as much as I would love to be like a police officer, for example, I would love to be the kind of person who does that, like to have one, to have those skills. I don't, I don't know much about how to uh, engage in combat, for example. You know, at the very least, I'd like to know that just for self-defense. I've thought about going and learning Krav Maga or Keto and uh, something. I don't I don't know what it would be. There's so many of them that the first problem would be which one makes sense. I'd have to like figure that out. Um, but I mean to to be doing that for a society, to be somebody who you know polices and uh, and uh, you know fights bad guys. I guess you're kind of like a a civil superhero of some kind. Be kind of nice. But at the same time, like I like the idea of it, but the idea of, <clears throat> I mean, actually doing it, the reality of you're a police officer every day, I don't know if I could stomach that. I don't know if I have the constitution, and it's more psychological. It's more, if you're in that position, you're seeing the worst elements of human nature in your work. At the very least, the people that you're dealing with, you have to assume that everyone is a threat when you're dealing with them. You can't have this cheery, rosy-eyed picture of human beings, or you might you might very well get yourself killed very, very quickly. And I, I, that's what I don't think I can... I couldn't compartmentalize. I couldn't just have to look at people as, with, as though they're evil, you know, at least just for in self-defense, and then come home and think well of the world. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know how people do it. Like I have, I have my best friend from high school who I 
talk to occasionally. He uh, He's a police officer. And I, I don't know how he does it. Actually, I guess I do because I've known him for long enough. He he is uh, he definitely has a very dim view of human nature. He doesn't like people very much, but he does. You know, he makes a lot of very dark jokes. Like he manages to make light of things that are just. If you were to dwell on them without laughing, they would just make you depressed. And he I, he definitely doesn't. He's pretty cynical. I don't think he has a very good view of human nature, but he just does it. He has this weird pragmatic balance. He's able to do both. Gotta respect the hell out of that man. I don't, I don't know how. Yeah, I think it's there's two things you can do in this world. You can either you can either fight evil or you can be an advocate for good. Uh, if you wanna if you wanna break it down and make it binary like that. I think I have to be an advocate for good. I have to like find a ball that's rolling where I want it to go and like push it and sort of be with people who feel good about people and are trying to like put that message out there. Yeah. Anyway, let's see more generally. I'm, yeah, so I'm looking for a job pretty actively right now. Um, I'm actually surprised how I've not gotten a whole lot of responses from applications that I've sent out. Um, so I don't I don't actually know what that is. Like, I, there's it's certainly not for lack of demand. Like, I, there's plenty of companies in the city where I reside that are looking for software engineers particular people that have uh, skills that I do. Um, but I've, I've probably applied like close to two or three dozen places now, and I haven't heard from very many of them. Um, it's only a very, very small handful that have uh, even replied. So I, I kind of, I, I'm just kind of wondering what it is that is, uh, like what's the deal breaker? I might, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a typo on my resume that I, I, I completely missed, my proofreader missed, and it's just, that's the sticking point. <clears throat> I don't know what it is. It, I guess it, <clears throat> geez, what the hell? I guess it could be, uh, it could be my lack of a computer science degree. It could be that people have been majoring in that. Like 10 years ago, there, were, there was a lack of software engineers who, just just in completely in total. But now it might be that uh, it's been 10 years. A lot of people have degrees now. A lot of people have degrees and have a few years of experience. That could be working against me. Um, particularly because, I, I don't know, somebody could see that and say, like, oh, he's a self-taught programmer. He doesn't know algorithms. Like, you wouldn't know that I know them unless you test me on them. And that's probably not, maybe they just don't even want to go down that road. Maybe the self-taught programmers tend to be more conceited. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. What is it that uh, precludes me from consideration to begin with? So in any case, I'm sort of 
I've been focused in in San Francisco in particular. I'm like hopeful that when all of this opens back up, I'll be able to, you know, when we can finally start going into the office again, I'll be able to walk from where I live to whatever job uh, there is. But uh, I'm starting to think maybe maybe it's time to, um, I don't know, time time to expand the search. I actually have been. I started looking over the last couple of days in the rest of the country. Um, in some cases, even the rest of the world, but just looking for jobs that I can do remotely. And I'm considering like leaving the Bay Area if uh, if I'm going to get a full time remote job. Um, and I would guess we're probably going to be remote, uh, working just from wherever we are, um, for the next year. Then it might make sense just to get a remote job and to go live somewhere much cheaper and actually have like some experiences. Like I was looking at places, uh, to, to rent up in Lake Tahoe. Um, that'd be a completely different experience for the winter, uh, socially. Pretty much, it's just okay. You're in a, you're in a cabin somewhere, hunkered down, and uh, you know just working. At this point, I don't think that would be a whole. I don't think that would be drastically different. You might be able to get a little bit more square footage, um, proximity to nature, and it would definitely be a whole lot cheaper than living in this urban jungle that I'm currently living in. So, I am I am looking for places to live that are outside of the Bay Area, which would be much cheaper and picturesque in some way, and looking for remote jobs uh, that I think I'm suited for. We'll see. Uh, something will come through. Um, honestly, I've gone, I've gone the full, yeah, like the full interview circuit. Like there's a couple of companies I've had phone screens with did the initial technical interview and they're like, eh, we don't think you're a good fit for one reason or another. But I've only done like gone through the whole interview process with three companies outside of that. And two of them have said no. And one of them I haven't heard back from yet. That's been close to a week. Um, and that's not really that many. I mean, two rejections is not enough to establish a pattern of anything, really. And it, it does bear keeping in mind that, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit shelter in place, like a lot of tech companies in the Bay Area laid a bunch of people off. Like Uber, Lyft, the ride sharing companies, they, they just had to dump a bunch of people out. And that, a lot of companies had to do that. So there was suddenly a flood of um, probably highly, highly competent software people, people with experience in um, yeah, part of it too, is that I'm looking to like move away from what I've done. As soon as you like start looking to get a job in an area where you don't have a lot of experience, maybe only that's, that's been partial part of your experience, like then it becomes much harder. You know, I've always done like kind of front end JavaScript building user interfaces on the web sort of thing. I'm less interested in doing that now and more interested in architecting backend systems, you know, building um, scalable API endpoints. I don't know who's listening to this that would care about any of these details, but this is my podcast and, you know, there's nothing else going on right now. So 
bear with me for a couple of uh, seconds here. Um, yeah, but I don't have a whole lot of experience doing that. Um, so I could see, I could see why if you're, if you're holding out for something specific, then maybe you don't have a whole lot of experience in, uh, at least not as much as other people sending in their resumes, then I could see it being a little more challenging. Yeah, I guess I could keep talking about that, but I really don't want to. Uh, I don't want to, on the off chance, somebody is listening to this. I'm like, so what do you have to say that's interesting? Uh, I won't talk about my job search a whole lot. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel like I'm ready to be working again. As soon as I left my job, like back in March, I was kind of like, yeah, I need... I need some time to decompress the thought of like sitting down at a computer and writing code and working with a team of people to do anything. It just felt, I, I didn't think I had it in me. Now I'm kind of like, it's every day I wake up, I come out and make my coffee. I start like watching, you know, uh, software engineering tutorials or lectures on YouTube or, watch movies or do some reading. It's kind of like, okay, I'm ready to be doing something now. I just kind of feel like I'm sitting around idle. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, just looking for an interesting mission I could contribute to. Uh, what else? There's, of course, always a whole lot to talk about, but I'm like, what else would be interesting? Um... I gotta say one thing I'm really grateful that I, I do have access to is uh I have a washer and dryer in my unit. In in my mind, that's how you know you've made it in the Bay Area. As soon as you like have a place and you can have your own washer and dryer. I'm I'm really glad that I don't live somewhere where I have to like you know, box up my laundry into baskets or bags and like haul it down to a corner laundromat and, you know, sit there and watch it and like read or something while it's going on. Yeah. Oh, especially, I mean, right now in particular, I've done that before. I don't, I don't mind doing that, but doing it during a pandemic, the fewer reasons you have to like need to leave your place right now, the better. You know, laundry's a big one. Laundry's when you you really, when you need to do it, you need to do it. You know, it's like shopping for food. When you gotta do it, you gotta do it. There's really no. And so it's, yeah, I'm really glad that I, I do have that. If I could somehow like acquire food without going out, I guess I could. I could like could grow things I think I've talked about this before but I have like a I have like a patio an outdoor patio and there is there is easily let's see let's make an estimate here four feet deep by 25 feet but there's a hundred square feet of dirt that I you know isn't actually mine I don't own it it's communal I think but it's like only I have access to it it's like right off of my patio between me and 
the, the drop down to the street. And it's just like got landscaping uh, stuff in it. Like I don't even know what they are. They're like scrawny little green bushes planted like six inches apart. Just in like a grid. Just to like cover so that there's like green cover on the... And I'm like, I don't want to ask the question, but I wish I could just like tear all that crap up, like till the soil, put down some like nutrients and like grow some food there. <coughs> Excuse me. There's even like a, a small tree on uh, like the right in the middle. So there's a couple patches on either side where you could have plant full sunlight crops and, uh, you know, partial shade areas right in the middle under the tree. You could plant uh, stuff that would die in direct sunlight. Really could do a lot with it. And I'm really, really kind of kind of bummed that they're just, well, that's like anything. Like, if, yeah, if I had a house, for example, and I had a lawn just covered in grass, Oh, that would uh, that would bother me. Because I would I would want to tear all of that crap up. I don't care about grass. I'd want to put you know I'd want to like plant food, like turn most of it into some sort of garden, some raised beds, and you know maybe maybe some parts of it are grass, uh, you know to prevent the erosion. I think that's the point of grass, isn't it? Like is that why people have people have grass on uh I mean, it's certainly your kids can play on grass much better than they can play on dirt. It's probably safer to play on grass. But I imagine it, it prevents erosion. Probably there's something cosmetic to it as well. But yeah, like the the, the mandates in sub suburbia. Um, I, I, had a, I had a friend in the town where I grew up and his parents had a uh, had a had a house with several acres behind it actually, but the front, the front yard, um, which was right on a very major road. Uh, apparently, like they went out of town for a few weeks. Um, I don't remember how long it was, but they came back and there was like, you know, if you come back to your car after like several days, and there's just like a this this stack of parking tickets on top of it. And you can kind of go back and see the chronology of, okay, here's your first citation. Okay, here's another citation on top of that. And they just keep getting worse. You know, you're luckier if your car's even still there. Because they're like, you know, final notice, we're towing this thing unless you move it. It was kind of like that. They had a whole stack of, like, warnings sent to them from the city saying, your grass is too long, you got to cut it. You know, and at the end, there was, like, a final bill saying like, look, you weren't taking care of it. So we sent some people out from the city to just cut your lawn for you. And here's a bill, you know, for the trouble. And it, had, it was of course some unreasonable amount of money. Like you would never have to pay this many hundreds of dollars to some company comes out and cuts your lawn once, you know, the city's uh, just gouging. But I, I don't I don't get that. I don't get why people are so draconian about their lawns. There's a neighborhood in Tucson, Arizona, which 
I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but every year around Christmas time, you can go in there and walk around and it's almost everyone in the neighborhood does something amazing. You know, so it's just, there's, yeah, there's, there's people all around the streets. Like you can't even drive in there. Um, must be annoying to live there around this time of year. Uh, but everybody has like their houses decked out with Christmas decorations. So you can just wander around in this uh, kind of Christmas wonderland. Uh, this place actually has some very strict rules about grass. They're, they're in the middle of the desert. Um, nobody has grass in Tucson. All right, it is like one hour north of Mexico. It's just a sand pit full of like saguaro cactuses or cacti, which is it, I don't care. Uh, but all of these all of these houses are mandated by a, an ordinance in this particular neighborhood to have grass. And they have to even have a certain kind of grass. Like it can't just be any gr old grass. Like it has to be this one particular varietal of grass. And it, it requires a lot of water to keep alive and if it dies, like if it becomes too brown, you get fined. So it actually is a massive drain on like the city's water resources. Uh, probably not the worst one, but it's, it, it, I don't know. It feels so unnecessary. Like it's, we, we need to have grass. Everyone in this neighborhood we need to look like we're, we're not in the desert. And if it gets too brown, you get fined. If it gets too long, too uh, unkempt and uncouth looking. Yeah, we have to <laughs> define people. So weird what we prioritize. Yeah, we're gonna like we're gonna penalize people for not tending their tending their lawns. Anyway, grass. Oh, okay, I've been going on for a while about this. The grass is just. I don't understand the obsession with grass. And I don't understand why this this dirt that is outside my place has to be. We just have to plant something that is, looks like a weed. I don't know what the technical botanical definition of a weed is. It probably is subjective, like something that uh, destroys the na like the native life in a place. But I mean, something that's just cosmetic it doesn't serve any purpose except for maybe like soil erosion. I think that's a weed. Isn't grass technically a weed? Like most of the major varieties of glass, don't they fall under that category? Like botanically speaking? I thought somebody told me that once, but I don't know if that's true. I'm to the age now where I have a bunch of like information that's been pumped into my head over the years by like from social interactions. Somebody says like, hey, you know, this is true. And of course I've looked into a lot of those things later. Like that's that's not true. That's just folklore. So much of what we think is scientific knowledge really is just folklore. Like, oh yeah, do you know this is true? Like this legally, this is this is a, a thing. No. So much of it isn't. So much of it is just people people heard this somewhere, and then they passed it on. So much of what I know is just like gossip that like sounds about right, you know. Uh, yeah, and this is the topsoil in which, uh, you know, ideas have to spread.
for someone, I'm on YouTube. I've actually given a lot of consideration to, um, to buying YouTube. There's a YouTube premium, YouTube red, whatever the hell the, the YouTube, you can get rid of the ads by paying some monthly fee. We're all like locked in now. I've thought about, I've thought about like shelling out whatever it is, you know, monthly just to avoid the ads. And I mean, I'm on there so much, like for educational purposes, YouTube is actually very, very useful. You can find really good stuff on there, good lectures. Um, it's amazing. I don't see why I wouldn't like pay for the thing. But at the same time, anything that has ads on it, I kind of like, I kind of say to myself, well, maybe I shouldn't be wasting my time on something that has ads. Maybe I should just like learn from other things. But I don't know. The ads that I see, like so many of them now are for like weird products that I would never, you know, I would never like use. And some of them get repeated ad nauseum. Like there's somebody like, maybe some of you have seen this. There's some sort of product where you can like, it's, it's like a rubber ring, a thick rubber ring, and you can put it in your mouth and like, you kind of like exercise your jaw against it. And I've never watched the whole thing. Like, it's always just like, you wait five seconds, you have to like see somebody using the thing and then you can click skip. I don't even know what the point of it is, but I've seen it, I don't know how many dozens or maybe even a couple hundred times by this point. It's like, whoever whoever's doing this, this, the stats on this, whoever's doing the analytics, don't they realize that I don't care? They're just hoping that if they keep impressioning me with it, that eventually I'm going to, I'm going to give in and be like, well, I got I got to figure out what this is. I have to know. But anyway, I see a lot of just random products. Like it's clear there's some inventor, some entrepreneur who had an idea, developed some like really cool looking technology and is now just trying to use internet advertising to, to get the word out there. That has got to be a grind. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I would want to do that. I, if, if there was a product I really, really believed in that I came up with, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine what that would be. I don't know. If I, if I had an idea that I really believed in that I would devote myself to, I might, I, I'd probably be doing it if working on getting it, getting it designed and built somewhere, prototyped. But I mean, like a, a little rubber ring that you can exercise your jaw with, whatever the hell that is. Like you're just you're just taking resources from the earth, like molding them into a form that is not uh, ecologically friendly, that won't you know decompose, and just you know assembling it and like uh, trying to sell them to people. Like it feels like there's just so much of that going on. Like it's like let's let's build a new thing and ship it to people. And they, they own it for a couple of years and then probably say, you know, I don't need this anymore and they throw it out or it ends up in a thrift store, like Yeah. This is the one reason I might like to uh if you do if you're building like a website, like software as a service, that's uh that's consuming like energy to keep that sort of thing going. And that's not negligible. 
but at least you're not like throwing plastic into the ocean, ultimately. That's where it all ends up. I did have a small like startup and tried to be an entrepreneur and create like a stuffed animals, stuffed animals that can hold smartphones. That was the idea. We had a prototype developed and ended up placing an order for like 500 units. It was like this blue owl. You could stick a smartphone and it had like a screen in its belly, like a pocket, like a kangaroo. You could slide your smartphone in there and use it. Like if you were, if you had a kid playing with a smartphone, uh, he could like hold this owl and like use it uh, when it's within the owl's stomach. Um, not the worst idea, but but ultimately we, we did, couldn't get it off the ground. We didn't sell very many. Uh, so like we ended up just, when we were moving from, uh, me and my partner at the time were moving from California across the country back to Michigan. We'd had these things for a few years and we were kind of like, okay, well, th- this is this is probably not going to happen. We're probably going to focus our efforts on other things and not try to make this happen. So let's just get rid of these damn things. And we took like the we had like nine boxes of the things. Um, these nine gigantic boxes, I think, with fifty each. And we we took them to a thrift store and just like left them in the donation bins. Now this is a story which um this was this was like six years ago now, but this is a story that never fails it's to like make me laugh. I wish I wish I could have been there when the employees came along and were like checking <laughs> they're looking for the they're looking it through the donation bins, they're like opening up these boxes and they're like Close to 500 owls, these, these blue stuffed owls, all the same, just, <laughs> just hundreds of them. They must have been like, what the hell are we going to do with all these? I imagine most of them ended up in the trash. I, I don't think, I don't think they just threw them in the stuffed animal bin that they had in the store. <laughs> oh yeah, the thought of, the thought of the reactions to that just always make me laugh. Uh, but anyway, that's the whole point. They, they, those things all ended up probably in a landfill somewhere. This is what failed business does. I mean, failed businesses uh, like that uh, produce a whole lot of waste. Kind of makes me wonder, like, you know, the small businesses, uh, you know, produce jobs. Yeah, of course they produce jobs. They're contributing to the economy, just like the big guys do. And the big guys, yes, are often environmental hazards because of the magnitude of, uh, you know, waste that they might create and be able to get away with unloading irresponsibly into the environment, et cetera, et cetera. That, uh, that could be a, an aspect of small businesses as well. There's, there's a long tail there that is a contributing factor. Probably not the biggest contributing factor, but it still is one. And so I don't know if I would do that again. Like if I had some product idea, like let's let's get this thing made and start trying to sell it. Something that's just non-essential. Like I think if I think if I was making something that people would just love and keep around for years and they'd have a hard time getting rid of, um, I might be able to 
to do that. Like, I, I might be okay uh, with whatever that product idea might be. You know, like people people buy Scrabble, for example. I think that just sits in a closet for years. I, you know, people just keep that. I don't, I don't think people are throwing out Scrabble. Maybe if they move, they, they'll keep it around and they'll get lots of enjoyment out of it for a long time. It's a very popular game. Something like that, sure, yeah. But not some like non-essential thing that people might just buy on a whim. Like, oh, I need a gift for so-and-so. I'll get them this thing. And then they get it and they're like, oh, thank you. I'm glad you thought of me, but I'm not going to keep this. I'll, I'll use it for a few months and then just get sick of it. And, you know, it goes right into the trash. Anyway, I don't, I don't know. I think if I'm going to be an entrepreneur in the future, it's going to be more, I don't know, the idea of being service-based. The whole thing about services, like if you're going to like sell your time for money or you're going to, yeah, like if you're going to, if, I could see myself like one day doing some sort of nature retreat. Like I have some land out in the woods, invite people out and let them, let them unwind. Like just take a long weekend center yourself and go back to your high 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 speed you know corporate life i don't know what that would look like i mean i, I couldn't do that in any like what would you say official capacity because i'm not a therapist i don't have any training but you can still do something um yeah no i had a friend of mine she had some friends up in i want to say seattle or the greater Seattle area who had a farm and goats and they would do goat yoga classes, which I, I, I never quite understood what that was. I think it's you, you go up and just do some yoga and some of the poses involve goats standing on you or you, you, the goats are just kind of wandering around while you're doing the yoga. Or maybe you're doing poses with the goats uh, um, as active participants. I don't actually know what goat yoga is, but apparently it was really, really popular. Like there were a couple of people who used to work, I want to say they used to work in software, like in tech somehow. And they ended up living out on this farm with goats. And the goat yoga thing was so successful that they ended up just not working their their full-time jobs and just doing just doing the goat yoga that became like their sole focus to earn a living that's how successful it was um and that, you know I'm, i might preface this by saying that that sounds ridiculous to be honest that doesn't sound ridiculous at all i'd be open to doing some goat yoga and uh i don't know how you discover something like that but i would love to like have a farm, have a bunch of goats, and uh, people just come do yoga, and I'm like uh, putting goats on top of them. They just come out, you know, have a nice uh, few hours, and then uh, go back to their uh, go back to their desk jobs. That sounds uh, that sounds great to me. I would totally do that. 
something like that though. Like, you know, the thing is people say, well, those businesses don't scale. Like you, you can really only earn as much as you. So if you, if you only have 20 people over in a day, um, then that's the cap on what you're earning. That times whatever the fee is. And you have to keep doing it to keep the income coming in. It's not residual. You know, I think that's residual income is of course the goal. You want to put out some music or some, some writings or something like, so it, it just, it'll keep working even when you're not and like uh, money will keep coming in. Which you can do if you're like programming software or, you know, if you produce a good, if you can like manage to automate the production of it and, the, you know, you manage to continue getting customers placing orders, then yeah, it becomes sort of self-sustaining. You can be more hands-off. It can be more part-time. Uh, which is ultimately the goal, you know, I think for most people, it's what I'd ultimately like to do. If I'm going to invest in something, time in something, I think it would be, that would be the ideal. Um, yeah. Uh, but we'll see. Oh yeah. What else? Um, it's only noon. Interesting. So the thing is, yesterday I woke up relatively late. I woke up at like 8 in the morning. And usually I wake up at 6. So by the time like 2 o'clock in the, in the afternoon rolled around, I remember thinking, it feels roughly like noon. I was surprised how late it was. And now it's like today I woke up at 6. And I was like, it feels like around 2 o'clock. And I look up and... Uh, it's it's only noon. It's like it's like I'm calibrated in terms of my sense of what what time it is uh, from like the reference point of uh, the day before. But why the hell am I talking about this? No, nope, nobody gives a shit. If you're listening to this, I have no idea why. Okay, so I remember I made a couple. I made a. I was talking. Um, on this podcast, I think like a couple of days ago, I mentioned that the whole like, you know, um, <clears throat> the, the narrative trope of like the, the main character is like stuck in a time loop, like uh, Groundhog Day. <clears throat> I've seen that done a few times. There's also like Edge of Tomorrow, the Tom Cruise movie about the war against the aliens. Uh, there's also a, a, <clears throat> a TV show um, on Netflix called Blue, uh, not Blue, uh, what's it called? Russian Doll. Uh, same premise. Um, and I said, that, like, I've, n- I've never seen, like, this be used and not liked the, uh, the movie. Like, whenever, whenever anybody does this, it's always enjoyable. Even if it's not really a good movie. I watched, uh, I watched one, which is in the horror genre called Happy Death Day. Uh, which is basically about a, a some college girl who gets murdered. And when she gets murdered, it, um, I mean, basically she wakes up in, in, a, in a loop at the beginning of the day. So she has to keep reliving the day and she has the opportunity to figure out who it is that killed her and stop it from happening. Um, <clears throat> I, I can't say I really enjoyed this one. I mean, it was, like I said, it's a premise that I always kind of enjoy. Like, it doesn't matter how bad the movie is. Like, I always, I, I like it. Um, like I'll enjoy sitting through it at least once. <clears throat> um, 
but this one of course was like the, the the typical horror movie where it's it's just the characters are over the top like it's not really believable like you're like this this is not what would actually happen this is not the way people are in real life <clears throat> i think this is the problem with most uh horror movies i grew up when i when i was in middle school i read a lot of stephen king and unfortunately dean koontz and uh this uh i think that stuff gives you a very skewed perspective on the world like just as i was coming of age trying to get a sense of like who people are and how the world operates and you know so on and so forth like you're reading about all the worst like ideas that that came out of somebody's head as fiction like oh, there's a serial killer who's doing this disturbing thing and all of this like i I think it kind of warped my perspective. I think that's why I was later reading like Thomas Hobbes and thinking, yeah, this is, this is, this is it. Human nature sucks. I'm sure that didn't help. But anyway, yeah, happy, happy death day. I enjoyed it as much as, you know, any time loop narrative, but I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go around recommending it. It seemed a little silly. Like, uh, yeah, just, I don't know. I don't know what it is about, uh, it's not that horror movies have, should be more realistic because that's, everything is exaggerated and it's exaggerated to the point that it doesn't reflect reality. And that's what makes us like it. But I don't know if you exaggerate characters if, if like the actions and motivations of the character are so hyperbolic that they can't be believed, that might be the one that might, that might be warping things, uh, to the wrong extreme. I think the characters and their, their motivations have to be credible. And if you don't have that, no other elements of the plot make sense. That's where you can't suspend disbelief is when the characters themselves are not believable. Maybe. Look at this. Yeah, sold the book. Mm, all right, so I gotta go package this one up. I'll send this out this afternoon. Awesome. And now I can have an excuse to leave. Mm-hmm. And I'm also focusing my job search on particular verticals. <clears throat> um, I'm definitely interested in farm science and farm management. I've always said that I want to, um, at some point, work on the world's food supply. And as somebody who writes code, uh, I don't know exactly, you know, how I do that. There's, there's probably a few ways you could work that in. I mean, farms are using software to manage their whole process, just like anyone else. So, something I could, something I could conceivably do. Um, but I'm I'm looking for, like it's called ag tech, agricultural tech, uh, people who are managing uh, uh, 
farms, like whatever it is they're using to make things more efficient. Uh, and that's, um, yeah, I'm actually, I'm looking around for jobs like that. Actually, a lot of them right now are in the cannabis industry because that's, that was just legalized maybe two and a half years ago in, in California. And it's starting to become legalized everywhere. So that's definitely on the grow. Like there are companies that make point of sale software for dispensaries or people making tools for, um, you know, crop management, the cannabis plant management, uh, or, um, well, various things. I kind of wonder if, uh, I, I kind of wonder if that's like a risk. I feel like if you've got a job in software working for somebody in the cannabis industry, I know it's just a job. Well, first of all, I wonder what a place like that would be. If you, if you were a software developer at somebody who, at a company that basically is in the cannabis space, they're making cash registers for dispensaries. Is everyone in that company basically just going to be getting together after like outside of work? They're like, let's go do a happy hour. And they're all just like sparking up joints instead of like going to like a brewery. Everybody's going to the dispensary except for, you know, dispensary instead of a brewery. Is everybody there going to be like getting high, like at work, stepping outside every now and then to, is everybody going to be okay with it? Or is there anybody who, are, are they all just like basically working at a company and they don't, you know, they're not into cannabis culture. They're just in the cannabis, cannabis economy. <clears throat> I really wonder what someplace like that is, but I, I mean, I guess you have to kind of assume that that's going to be something that's maybe a part of the company culture. You're at least going to have a few people there who are going to maybe seem like burnouts <clears throat> maybe i don't know i kind of am tempted to just like do the interview circuit at a few at a couple of those places just to see maybe even ask that question like okay what's what's the company culture like are you all just putting on like uh, wizard of oz with pink floyd's dark side of the moon after work and like laughing your ass off when the two sync up like what what exactly do you what do you do <laughs> um i want to know i don't I, just, I don't know if i could actually like take a job there though because i feel like that would i feel like that would like basically hang over your head for the rest of your life because even if that isn't true which it probably isn't but even if that isn't true you're gonna like send out your resume in the future and it's gonna be like yeah i worked at this like cannabis dispensary point of sale software company for like three years like oh i see you know cannabis you're one of those you know like there's no way you'd go somewhere like you couldn't go to like raytheon like yeah i want to want to take my software career in a different direction now start working for the government send a resume into the cia yeah yeah i want to be a technologist with the government uh no, I imagine any job that requires clearance and not just government clearance, but the clearance of somebody who's looking to hire somebody who, you know, is known not to be dabbling in uh, pot. That might just preclude you at the outset.
Anyway, I, I wonder. I wonder if it'll ever get to a point where it's not stigmatized at all. I mean, it's it's legal, but it certainly still carries a stigma. I, I figure if you if you go into the middle of the country and you're like, a, I don't know, like small towns, conservative towns, probably, probably if you go somewhere in Alabama or Mississippi and you're just walking around with marijuana, I, I don't even know what it's like down there. If you were to just be off in a corner somewhere, like, you know, not like in the middle of Main Street, but if you're just like off in a city block, like you like smoke a joint, does anybody care? Is it something that people are, it still has a terrible stigma to it? I'm, I'm wondering about the Deep South specifically. I know there's places you can go where it's definitely, you, you don't want to be doing it. Texas? Oh, yeah. No, but I wonder about, like, you know, the Bible Belt. You know, is that something that's still... That's something that's still uh, verboten? Really don't quite know. Never quite understood that. Like, certainly, like, the, the Bible is very... uh doesn't say anything about marijuana mind-altering drugs or psychotropic drugs. Talks about alcohol. There is a passage in, uh, it's Proverbs, actually, Proverbs 31, 6 and 7, I want to say. It's like, give strong drink unto him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty. Remember his misery no more. Which sounds very much like it's, uh, um, you know, advocating for alcohol use. But I mean, in context, if you read it, it says uh, rulers, uh, people who are in charge, people who have responsibilities to people who are not themselves should not be drinking. But if somebody's dying, you know, like it's it's kind of like a, a show mercy um, on somebody with a terminal illness, like let them have their, their weed. It's like that. Like somebody who is perishing, like literally dying, and they're in pain, give them alcohol to numb them. This, this what, in context, is what the point that it's making. Which I actually think makes sense. I mean, that's that's pretty much what I would say. Like you, you can certainly indulge, but if you have responsibilities, think very hard about doing it at all and how much you do it. Um... In fact, that that's what it says, I'd have a very, very difficult time improving on that. But it doesn't say anything about, you know, marijuana explicitly. I don't even know if, I don't even know if it was like a thing anywhere. I know, I know it, it originated, cannabis originally comes from uh, Asia <clears throat> somewhere. And I'm trying to remember the country. Anyway, some, somewhere like around Tibet, like that's, that's where it flourishes. And it's been, you know, since propagated all over the world. But I wonder if they had 2,000 years ago, if people were even using it then. Certainly would be strange for religious people to um, not want people to smoke. Yeah. I would guess if you if you want to get people to have religious experiences and maybe start believing in God. Like I I would think 
I would guess that like uh, marijuana may not be the worst way of, of pushing someone in that direction to have an experience like that. <clears throat> There's another point of view, which I've, I've heard occasionally, which is I think thought to be clever, but it's the idea that, uh, also I heard a stand-up comedian with some, some um, black woman, gee, what was her name? I don't remember. She's talking about like Moses and the burning bush. She's saying like, aha, Moses is talking to a burning bush that won't be consumed by the fire. So I think Moses was uh, toking a little bit of the burning bush, if you know what I mean. Uh, it might have been a horribly offensive um, ethnic accent I just did there. But I mean, the point is, she's saying that like, yeah, it was just a, it was just a drug experience. Moses thought he was talking to God, but he... Um, there are, there are various arguments put forward this way. It's like, yeah, like most religious experiences, like most of uh, the numinous and the transcendent have come from people imbibing drugs. And they think that they see or hear something and then they write it down. And this is, this is where religion comes from. Um, this isn't actually quite as controversial as... Uh, and this isn't as controversial as I, I would think. Like people, religious people balk at this. They're like, what the hell? And, uh, you know, the people who make these arguments think that they're like, yes, yeah, see, mic drop. Religion all just comes from like drug experiences. But I mean, even if that's the case, it just, it doesn't disprove anything. It doesn't prove anything. Like it's, if that is the case and, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't say that Moses took anything hallucinogenic, but it doesn't say that he didn't. And the Bible is, uh, omits quite a few details about a lot of things. So it's not impossible. But if that's the case, then who is it that put the hallucinogen there? And what is it that prompted Moses to take the hallucinogen? If that's what triggered him to have the religious experience, and it was partially or even entirely in his head, does that actually mean that it wasn't... Uh, inspired by what you would call God. It could be that that was the whole point. It could be that the what you read in scripture as some sort of experience was took place in someone's head. They didn't actually see a real physical burning bush. They just had a hallucination of it. Maybe that's the point. To the extent that it was triggered by some outside influence, um, somebody consumed a, you know, a psychotropic, then, then yeah. God created the psychotropic and made the person eat it. If it was just some crazy hallucinogenic experience because the person had some sort of mental disease, who put the mental disease there? It still becomes this unanswerable metaphysical question. I don't even know if it's worth asking these kinds of questions. But anyway, I, that's, I really don't understand why. If something is just in somebody's head, um, does it make it any less real? Would you have to imagine that it actually happened in the real physical world for it to matter? This is what I wonder about biblical literalism. Does it all have to be literally true in order for it to have value? Does it matter? If it's not all literally true, does that lessen its impact? 
I'd really like to meet somebody who would say yes to that question and hear them answer why. Why must it all be completely accurate historically? Why, why must we insist, for example, that it all must be literally true? What benefit does that offer? I genuinely would like to, to, you know, to have that conversation with somebody. I mentioned Thomas Hobbes earlier. Like Thomas Hobbes is actually the person who I was reading his Leviathan in college when I was a pool boy. I had a lot of downtime. So I took philosophy in there. I read a lot of Rousseau. Um, stuff that I now know is was part of the Enlightenment. <clears throat> um, but Thomas Hobbes said in there, like, where, where does religion come from? Well, man looks for causes. What happened yesterday that influenced what happened today? What happened the day before yesterday? And so on. And you kind of go back and say, what was the original cause? Of course, this goes back to Aristotle, but what was the uncaused cause? What was the first thing that gave rise to the world and the universe as we see it now? And ultimately, whatever that first cause is, mankind says, well, that's God. And there's like, there's an idea, there's a kernel of an idea which is hidden in here, which has become much very, very popular to espouse, especially since the Enlightenment, which is to say that uh, religion is like some form of philosophy. So various philosophical systems have been dreamed up, not even dreamed up, they've been thought up by human beings over the years. So philosophical ideas have been sort of constructed logically, rationally, put down on paper and shared. And the thinking is, is that uh, religion is just the prelude to this, like it's just the antecedent. So basically somebody, somebody at some point thought up religious ideas and put them out there as some sort of like philosophical system. Now, I don't think this is quite true. I don't think this is accurate to say. I think it is that philosophy is generated by the head. Um, religion is something more primitive than that. It's something that's tied into something more, more to our, our, our roots, our instinctual roots, like religious ideas, religious symbolism, those seem to come from a level that is below our conscious uh, level of thinking. Philosophy comes from consciousness. Like it has to be people think they devise these systems. Religion comes more from like a feeling of something. This is why people think like it may have just been a drug experience. Like you don't take drugs to think better. You take drugs to like connect with something that feels like it's outside of you. To have a weird trippy feeling. If that's the case, then religion comes from feeling and philosophy comes from thought. And so I don't think that religion is, uh, if, sorry, I don't think that um, philosophy is meant to completely supplant religion because I think they serve two different functions. I'm not sure that one can replace the other. I'm not sure that one can be privileged over the other. I think you kind of need both. You need both the, uh, uh, the logos and uh, eros, chaos, basically. 
you need rationalism and you need the irrationalism that goes with it. You need the balance between the two. Uh, where was I going with this? I was talking about, I was talking about cannabis. Yeah. So yeah, farm, <laughs> farming industry. Yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking to see who, who in agriculture needs, uh, needs a uh, software help. Still interested in, um, biology, things in biotech. I certainly would be interested in contributing to those. <clears throat> I actually did a, there was like a take home coding challenge that a company sent me about a week ago. I uh, didn't get to it until yesterday morning. But when I did that, I, I, I chose to use uh, a library called NumPy, which is like a, the Python programming language has this, um, this library for efficient um, matrix and vector operations, basically doing linear algebra computations in Python um, in a much faster way than you could just do in raw Python. It is, it is fabulous. Uh, but I, I ended up using that for the coding challenge because it made some things easier, more straightforward, made the code more readable, I think. And I had a hell of a fun time doing that, actually. I really have never used NumPy um, in any major capacity at work. I touched upon it a little bit in my last job, but the Python opens data science tools like SciPy, NumPy, uh, Pandas, um, Dask this whole ecosystem, I love doing that stuff. I would love to build systems that are, that are processing data that way. Um, I've kind of been looking for that, but that's again, something I don't have enough experience in that I could really at this point justify saying, hey, I, I could do this job. I don't think those things are really difficult to learn for people who are competent programmers. So, um, yeah, but I'm starting to look there too. Like what's what's cool tech I might salivate over that I want to learn. I've been kind of interested in numbers too. Um, so here's an interesting idea. I, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but it, it kind of ties into Jungian psychology. Um, some quick background, if you're not familiar with it, like there are, there are complexes in the brain. For example, like you take an Oedipus complex, which is to say that somebody is too obsessed with their mother. Um, they have too much of an affinity for their mother. And of course, this goes back to, it's named after the story of Oedipus from Greek mythology, who um, tries to duck a prophecy by running away from home but ends up coming back and killing his father and marrying his mother without knowing it. Um, yeah, cautionary tale about being too attached to one's mother and the dangers and the tragedy that comes from that. Um, but Jung asked the question, which wasn't popular in psychiatry at the time, to say that, like, okay, complexes are obviously present in, in the cases of pathology, but are complexes present in healthy individuals? So maybe there's like an Oedipus complex, but is there just a regular mother complex? And he found that, yes, there was. There, there are little 
complexes are basically these little energy centers in the brain around which they draw associative material to them, you know. So the mother complex is, might draw like nurturing material. Whatever you look and see is nurturing. Um, you'll kind of associate that with the mother complex. And he also found that like they're, they're complexes that are inborn, like the mother complex. Uh, those things are actually present in all human beings and they're present in roughly the same way. Almost like we have a genetic um, genetic determination, something in our genetic code that always makes us have two hands and two feet and so on. There are certain complexes that we all share and they all kind of have the same elements to them, like the mother complex. And those shared complexes that are present in all human beings, he called archetypes. So there is a mother archetype, a father archetype, a child archetype, archetype of the self, and so on, that are just kind of present in all of us, and they tend to have similar uh, motifs, um, regardless of the culture or environment you grow up in. Now, in his later years, Jung started investigating um, numbers. And he was trying to like understand them as something that might be archetypal because it would be easy to look at the world and say, well, look, you can count a discrete number of things. Like if you look at the natural numbers, one, two, three, four, and so on and up that you can use to number uh, like a, a collection of things. Like how many eggs do you have? You have 12. Okay. Um, he thought there was something like more to it. Like, is that is the idea of numbers just out there in the universe? Like, are they a fact of reality or are they just a construct of the human mind that helps us make sense of things? Is it just a psychic phenomenon and it isn't actually like a, a constituent of objective reality as we know it? Now, he, he thought the former. He didn't think that numbers outside of like a person's ability to understand the world or to order it, he didn't think the numbers existed outside of that. So he defined order, he, sorry, he defined numbers, the natural numbers, a means of counting in his uh, essay on synchronicity um, as being a, how did he put this? an archetype of order in the human psyche that has become conscious. So it's a way of bringing order to the chaos that we see around us. We devise numbers so we can count things. And so he started investigating the numbers themselves. Uh, like he, he thought numbers one through four contained unique properties, like distinct from each other. And then once you get above those numbers that like really there wasn't anything new the same the same elements just sort of repeat and this is evidently an idea that goes back to uh at least pythagoras this is not something i'm clear on but the pythagoreans thought that there was more to numbers than just they weren't just mathematical constructs that you could you know do cool theoretical math with um, they thought numbers were something transcendent. They thought they were something met metaphysical. Like the, the thought that there is numerology 
we now have numerology and we have number theory. Number theory is, you know, scientific and mathematical. It's, uh, it's based on rigorous proof and demonstration. Numerology is not really scientific. It's just kind of the, the, uh, the alchemy part of, uh, numerology is to like number theory as alchemy is to, um, chemistry. Like it kind of is a forerunner. Uh, numerology is kind of a forerunner of, uh, of, of number theory that has some metaphysical elements to it that, you know, number theory has not chosen to import into itself. <clears throat> but the Pythagoreans looked at these numbers as being something that were, they had underlying significance and they actually, according to Aristotle's metaphysics, they, they thought the numbers one through four were special. I watched something about this this morning. Um, they thought that these first four numbers had significant elements. And, you know, numbers five and above were kind of just repeating the same elements. And that was the Greeks, of course, in Western culture. There's... Um, so I've, I've also been consulting the I Ching on occasion. It's called the Book of Changes. Um, and in a nutshell, what you do is you build something called a hexagram. So you can, let's say you flip a coin, you're either going to get heads or tails. And there are two different lines you draw to build a hexagram, either a straight line that's just complete or a line that's broken in the middle. Uh, a single straight line is called a light line. And the line that has the break in the middle has two different fragments separated by a space. It's called a dark line. So basically you, you, you flip a coin six times and you get, um, one of these two on each case and you end up with uh, 64 possible combinations. You build a hexagram from the bottom up by the flips of, of coins. And it's a little more complicated than that because you're actually flipping three coins. So there are actually uh, four possibilities. Like if, you, if you think about it, you can get all heads or all tails. Those are two of the eight. Um, but for like, if you have three heads, you can flip any one of those over and get a tail. Or you can do the opposite. If you have three tails, flip any one of those over and get the the heads. Those are the other three times two. It's, it's the six. So you get eight possibilities. Um, a head represents a, a number two. Tail represents the number three. And so you throw three coins and you add up the sum of those numbers. Now the main ones you're going to get, uh, you know, six times out of eight is going to be a sum of either six or seven, or sorry, uh, either seven or eight. So if you get, uh, two heads and a tail, that's a, that's a, a seven. If you get, uh, two tails and a head, that's an eight. And a seven represents a light line, an eight, represents a dark line. So in this case, the, uh, the odd number seven, um, is a light line. That's the masculine line. And the dark line is, uh, the even number, the eight. And that is associated with the feminine. So you have the two different components, uh, like the yin and the yang, 
this is this is the two different energies between the positive, sorry, the uh, even and odd numbers. Um, now the other possibilities, heads and tails. Like if you get all heads and all tails, the other two possibilities, those either give you a light or a dark line with a dot next to it, which is a transformation, which means that when you, if you get one of the 64 hexagrams, you grab a copy of the I Ching, look up which hexagram you just built. Um, I am not telling this very well. So imagine you have a question about something. You keep the question in your mind, and then you throw the coins six times. And in order to get the answer to your question, in order to follow the advice, you open up the book of changes, find the hexagram that you built with your question in mind, and read the advice that it has for you. And the little dots, you know, you can get a dot uh, on the hexagram at like maybe none or all six of these, uh, these coin tosses. And those contain like caveats. So there's like a general piece of advice for each hexagram. It says, if you've got to transform at position one, you know, the lowest line, then here's a qualification. And there's maybe six of those. There is, there are six of those for each one. And some of them might apply to you. And the point is that like the masculine and feminine, the light and the dark is represented by odd and even. So seven is the masculine line. That's the light line. And that is, uh, that is what you get if you throw a number nine. So you throw three tails. That is an odd number. Um, so that is the masculine line. It's the solid light line with the transformation. If you throw three heads, then you get a six. That's an even number. So it's a, a feminine one. And it is a, a dark line with the transform. So there's four possible outcomes, light or dark, with or without a transform. Now, what's interesting is the whole notion of odd or even. Um, <clears throat> uh, being either masculine or feminine. Because the Greeks, um, they had the numbers one through four. And the number two was considered masculine, and number three was considered feminine. But above that, all the even numbers above two were considered feminine, and all the odd numbers above three were considered masculine. So this is what was devised in Greece, and this is what it was happening in, you know, the Far East. Um, and the I Ching was created, and this was long before Pythagoras. The I Ching is incredibly old. And of course, it's like anything. You obviously can't throw coins, build a hexagram, and open up a book and expect it to have the answer for you. It's, uh, it's like anything else. It's more just you have some thoughts in your head which maybe don't have a whole lot of structure or order to them. So you just sort of throw these coins and you open up a, you know, it's like reading tarot cards. The cards are not going to give you the answer, but you're going to like, whatever's going on in your head, you sort of project that onto whatever method of divination you're consulting and it might structure your thoughts and give you insight that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And if you get no insight from it, then it is useless. It's certainly not scientific, but it is not without utility. 
And of course, you know, this is the kind of thing that people who think they're clever, they'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to like, I'm going to ask a question and throw a hexagram and then look at the I Ching. And then I'm going to ask the same question again. And if it's scientific, then I'll get the same damn hexagram. It's like, well, no, you're not going to. And of course, that's just sort of, of course, that's, you. of course, you're going to get a different answer. It's not scientific. That's the point. Although the first two times that I, I consulted the I Ching, I actually asked question around should I remain in San Francisco would it be a good idea for me to stay here and get a job in tech was that the right course forward for me is that wise that was the first question I ever asked it and I threw a hexagram and I got one of the 64 the next week I asked roughly the same question like the second time I asked the I Ching anything and threw coins and got a hexagram I asked roughly the same thing but about a particular job should I stay in San Francisco, take this particular job if it's offered to me? Would that be a good move for my career? Does that make sense? And I got the same damn hexagram. A couple of different transformations, like there were dots in a couple of different places, but uh, if it's any indication, I, I, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if that's just coincidence, um, but I thought it was interesting. So, I mean, I am kind of, I'm, I am interested in like numbers. I've, I've always been fairly rational. Like I, I really do like math. I do like numbers, something I enjoy. I have always enjoyed studying. I remember when I was in uh, sixth grade, I learned about uh, the Pythagorean theorem and I was like obsessed with that. I was drawing like these little triangles all over everything with the right triangles and computing the numbers and then measuring. And I was like, how can this work? How can this be? We call it the Pythagorean theorem, but uh, you know it, it's widely believed that it came from Babylon. Like those number triples were already being formulated long before uh, the math hippies of Pythagoras were, you know, uh, before they came up with it. But I mean, I do wonder about this. I wonder. I wonder to what extent that is, is an answer, like numbers, the way we understand the physical world at the lowest level is through numbers. Hell, even at the, at the highest level, it's through numbers. But numbers are not something that are out there in the world. Numbers are, I think, just a construct of the human mind. It's something we've devised in order to put order onto the universe and to quantify certain things that we observe in reality. Um, I mean, the, the ancient Pythagoreans thought that there was something about numbers that somehow indicated like the most fundamental aspects of reality. And they didn't think to be scientific about it, but I mean, now we're about 2,500 years later, and at the lowest level, at the quantum level, we have like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Again, just numbers. Maybe not specific numbers, instead it's like a, you know, an inequality. You know, a, what Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is that uh, the position of a particle of matter um, and its momentum like basically the variance in those two things, the uncertainty of either of those, the product of those two 
variances has to be greater than some constant. So you can't know uh, both of them precisely. But it's all just numbers layered on top and they, they seem to speak to something transcendent that defies our understanding. Trying to understand the world mythologically, there's something elemental and primitive. Reading a lot of mythology about uh, the inflation of the human ego. When mankind is first born, he doesn't really have much of a consciousness that has to kind of grow out of him. He kind of expands into his own self. And we have this idea in science that there's this creation story of the Big Bang. So there's, there's nothing and suddenly it expands into everything that we know. There's math that backs this up. There is science that backs up these theories to some extent, but you kind of have to wonder how much, uh, how much of modern day physics, uh, how many aspects of that we don't understand will later like be relegated to the, to the dustbin of metaphysics. Maybe it won't be called metaphysics, but like these, these are the ideas we had that were mistaken in the light of new understanding. I have always heard people say that. People have always said like, well, what are we going to look back at what we know now and say, well, we just didn't know. Yeah, I've been hearing that for years. I really don't think I ever had a tangible feeling about any possible example of that until only relatively recently. I feel like there's so much that we don't know and so much which is so imprecise in our current understanding of things that, yeah, probably a lot of it's going to get thrown out. What and when? I, I have no idea. But... uh there's clearly a lot left to figure out and a lot to investigate. And, um, yeah, I don't always like operate looking at the world that way. Like there's so much we don't know. I tend to have the conceit that like, yeah, wherever we are, we, we know all the shit. We've discovered everything. We've figured it all out. In all honesty, that's a pretty depressing way of looking at the world. When I actually manage to come to the conclusion, when I start seeing the world through that lens, like there is just so much that we don't know that's left to be figured out, then I get very excited. And then I remember that investigating all that stuff, which we know nothing about, you know, trying to illuminate the frontiers of human ignorance. I remember, oh yeah, there's really not a career path in investigating any of those things. Then I get depressed again. And I'm like, damn it, I should probably just like start learning how to use some programming language and just start, uh, you know, doing my job. But it's fun in your own time to look at the world with a sense of wonder. Anyway, I think that's a good one. I got a package to shift. I've got uh, some work to continue doing. Uh, this has been grand. Uh, wherever you are, I hope you're doing well. Hope you're taking care of yourself, staying healthy, staying safe, whatever that means. And I hope you're keeping in contact with your loved ones. We should do this again sometime. You take care of yourself. And uh, yeah, until next time, this is Jim signing off. Cheerio.